You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, everybody. All right, quick answer. Is there still sex in the city? Yes. Yes, but less. And everybody's having less, including the millennials. They're having the least of all. But we'll talk about that later. Um, this is not a sequel to Sex and the City, but it has, it has different characters. Um, but the inspiration for writing it was the same feeling that I had when I started writing Sex and the City. And when I started writing Sex and the City, the feeling was really like this is uncharted territory, writing about, you know, single women's lives in the city and the mating and dating rituals. And, um, I, you know, at the time we thought, oh gosh, this only happens in New York city, but it turned out that it actually happened everywhere. Now, back in the mid nineties, um, I was a woman in my mid thirties and I felt like being single was really like a feminist kind of statement. And it meant that, you know, you were kind of willing to break the rules and, you know, pursue your own dreams instead of maybe necessarily, you know, pursuing finding a man. (laughs) And what's so interesting to me is that 20, 25 years ago, if you were a single woman in your mid thirties, people really felt that there was something wrong with you. Now, and I think partly thanks to the sex in the city, people just think you're normal. And so I think that's a, you know, that's a bit of a triumph. But when I was uh, writing sex in the city, I felt very much like an outsider. And like a lot of my sex in the city friends, I did end up getting married and, um, you know, I guess I found my Mr. Bigger and also maybe my Mr. was a little bit younger. Um, and most of my friends also ended up finding their Mr. Big, their Aiden, their Harry, or maybe even their Steve. Now, all you guys, you know sex in the city, right? Okay. Because I, I don't want to be like, people are looking at me like, what, who, is, who is she talking about? Um, and then something happened. And I personally ended up getting divorced when I was 52. And so that was kind of the end of my, what I thought would be happily ever after. Because I really didn't think about it that much. And my first instinct was to run away. So I ran away to Connecticut. I started riding horses. And then I had two other girlfriends who they didn't have children. And we, uh, and I decided to do what women are always saying that they're going to do when you're younger. We're all going to live together and we're all going to live close by and we will be like the golden girls. (laughs) And honestly, 
for six months, it worked. <laughs> we went to the, uh, the vegetable markets, farm stands. We made dinner. We had one friend of mine, Sassy. She came up with any excuse to have a party and wear hats. <laughs> and I sort of thought, okay, this is going to go on, you know, forever. <laughs> but then a whole bunch of my other friends ended up getting divorced and what happens when women become single again? You go to where the other single women are. So all of a sudden, all of these newly single women, all in their 50s, came to Sag Harbor, which I call the village in this book. Now, when I got divorced, I really thought I did not want to date at all. Um, I really felt like I've already done this. I've already done the reproductive cycle where I, you know, got married. I was in love, this and that, and then it didn't work. Why am I going to attempt to do it again? Isn't there something better that we as women can do now that we're in our fifties besides looking for men? Okay. The answer was pretty much No. Because all of my friends uh, and women who I know wanted to start dating again. Um, and once again, it was, and it's not just dating, but it's also reinventing your lives. And so once again, it felt like this is really uncharted territory because there are women who are dating again. They haven't dated for 20, 25 years. And things have really changed. And the other thing that happens when you turn, when you get somewhere in your fifties is that there can be a feeling of invisibility. And, you know, there's a question of, are you still relevant? Children leaving the nest, you know, careers may end all of that kind of stuff. So there's also that struggle. Um, but like sex in the city, once I started dating again, I discovered that there were certain types of guys out there, <laughs> just like there were in Sex and the City. And there were some surprises. Um, one of the things that's, that seemed immediately clear was guys your age no longer find you attractive. <laughs> Okay, so 50-something guys, and I know there are men in the audience like, I'm not like that. We're not really brought up to think of somebody in their 50s or 60s as being attractive and being like a potential sex partner. And it does go uh, both ways. Um, <laughs> yes, it does. And one of the things that uh, one discovers is there are younger guys who are interested. That's a, another story. And then one of, you know, the, the things that you do is, okay, guys, your age aren't interested. They're interested in younger women. So why not try to beat the odds by going for a guy who's older, right? Uh, maybe dating a man who's 15, 20, or even 
25 years older. Which is fine, except that given the fact that you're now middle-aged yourself, that means a man who could be 70, 75, or even 80. You wouldn't think that there would be a large contingent of men out there at that age who are dating. But when you think about demographics and how so many of the boomers are now in their later years, it makes sense that there's a crop of 60, 70, and even 80-something men out there acting like they're 35. (laughs) I personally encountered one of these men at a party given by a married couple in their early 60s, and they decided to just get it over with and invite all the newly 50-something single women. I don't know how many of you guys have been in that situation. And then they would invite... a couple of eligible guys who they could dig up. (laughs) So there were lots of 50-something single women there, and two or three of these senior-age players, or saps. (laughs) These are older single men of means, meaning they have enough money to add it to their list of attributes and are often still employed in a lesser version of the high-powered career they once had. At some point during the evening, I must have talked to one of these men because a few days later, Ron, the host of the party, contacted me to let me know that out of all the 50-something women there, and I was in my 50s then. Now I'm 60. um, He wanted to let me know that a fellow named Arnold had picked me out of the bunch to ask me out. Now, Ron was very excited about this. And he was suddenly very impressed with me that I could attract a guy like Arnold. Because Arnold, he said, was a big deal, and everybody really admired him. Arnold had played Ivy League football, and he was once an oil man and a newspaper magnet, and all the Park Avenue hostesses were always inviting him to their parties. He was sought after. I thought I remembered the guy. (laughs) A tall, thick, battle-axe type who was definitely older. Too old for me, I decided. "Mm, How old is he, I asked. He's a little bit older than I am, Ron said. So that would make him like 68. The thing is, these guys often lie about their ages. (laughs) They fudge, somehow forgetting about that truth-revealing device called the Internet. Sure enough, when I Googled him, Arnold turned out to be 78. (laughs) And that made him much closer to my father's age than mine. My father was 83. Arnold was just five years younger. But they couldn't have been more different. My father is very conservative, and Arnold apparently is not. According to Ron, Arnold used to be somewhat of a notorious wild man at Studio 54. And even to this day, Arnold still has much younger girlfriends, the last one being 42. I don't know how he does it, Ron said. I wanted to tell Ron that I didn't want to be the one to find out. And so I tried to say no to this fix-up. 
peer pressure, however, is one of the things that I hadn't counted on in middle age. And when it came to dating, it turns out there was a lot of it. My friends kept reminding me that it was good to go out and it was really good that someone had finally asked me out. When was the last time that it happened? Of course I should go. What's the harm in it? And besides, you never know. Of course, the problem with you never know is that so often you actually do know. (laughs) I knew, or I was convinced I knew, that I was not going to date a 78-year-old man no matter how wonderful he was. What if he fell down? (laughs) I didn't spend my life working this hard to end up taking care of a strange older person. But every time I tried to explain this to people, I realized how ageist and judgy and anti-love hopeful I sounded. Because I didn't know, did I? I didn't know what was going to happen. What if I fell in love with him? In which case his age wouldn't matter, right? Plus, I didn't want to be that creature. You know, that shallow creature. And you know, that shallow woman who cares more about practicality than the blind illusions of love. Plus, as Ron reminded me, I must feel so honored that a man as powerful as Arnold wanted to spend time with little old me. (laughs) In preparation for the date, I went to my friend Sassy's house, and we looked at photographs of Arnold on the internet. His photos went back, back about 35 years. He'd been a big man and rather handsome. Oh, honey, Sassy said, he could turn out to be absolutely wonderful. You must keep an open mind. And so arrangements for a date were negotiated. We could have gone to a restaurant in my town, but Arnold really wanted me to see his house, which was in another town about 30 minutes away. However, he offered to pick me up and take me to his town, and then I can always spend the night at his house if I needed to, and he would be really willing to drive me back to my house in the morning. A sleepover with a 78-year-old man I didn't know? I don't think so. Thank you. All right. I was going to say she's a really hard act to follow, but you're still here. Thank God. Oh. Um, Arnold. So. <laughs> yes. You know, I didn't the, spend the night. I take it. I'm sorry. <laughs> you didn't spend the night. He showed you his bed. He yes. really tried I mean, hard. The thing about actually, I, you know, I, I really made it funny and I worked hard to make it funny. Um <laughs> He was really, really sexist, like shockingly so, and, and really quite oblivious and very entitled. Like one of the first things he showed me was his bed, <laughs> which was 20 years old or older. <laughs> and he'd shipped it from... California. And he said, I had a lot of really, I've had a really lot of good sex on that bed and I expect to have a lot more. (laughs) And I was like, this is just too much. So I, he was, yeah, I mean, it's, (laughs) I don't, I want to know why your friends were so invested 
in you meeting with this guy? Well, I think it's something that we as women do. We want each other to be taken care of. And it's still somewhere in the back of all of our minds, even though it really doesn't happen, um, that, you know, somehow the male is going to be the protector and you'll be okay if you're with somebody, if you're partnered up. And I do, I think, you know, as human beings, we tend to feel that way. The problem is that these guys are not, they're looking for a relationship that's really just about fulfilling their needs. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but it seems, it seems from reading the book, um, which I encourage all of you to do, which I'm sure you will be flocking to do so after this conversation, especially is that what was so exciting to your friends about this guy is that he had, he had a little bit of money and he had a little yes. bit of power. Yes. And so exactly. it seems like, it seems like at this point in our cultural history in this moment that we're in right now, that maybe that would become less important, but yet it's still lingering on. What do you see happening with all that? You know, I think it's still lingering on, but what's frustrating, of course, is that, you know, men like Arnold are not, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not what a lot of women are necessarily looking for. And, um, you know, power, powerful men, they like to enjoy their power. And, you know, for powerful men, often part of that is a certain amount of sexual freedom. Um, and, and that was Arnold. (laughs) He was raring to go. He was raring to go. And I think, but that's the other thing that's, you know, very shocking, but it won't be shocking to any of the men here. Uh, but are when you start dating here? again, <laughs> there are men here. I saw them already and they're like, Ugh. just checking. They're okay. like, we're going to kill her. <laughs> uh, Is Arnold here? It was how they want sex immediately. <laughs> it's like, really? Well, because I mean, and, and I, but I find though, I also, <laughs> when I talk to women who work in like old age homes and that kind of thing, they're like, you know, it's really a problem. <laughs> you know, these men, they want to kiss you. They want to do all of this and it's just not appropriate. Do you think it's just, you know, you get into your seventies. I mean, neither of us are there yet, but like, let's, let's just cut through the crap. Let's just get to the sex. <laughs> I mean, is that maybe I, part of what's going on? Who knows? No, no, I don't <laughs> think so. I think that this is somebody who that's how he, you know, that's how he operates. How he operates. You know, yeah. he has a certain things that he's going to tempt you with. Like he had this little pool and he was like, you could come and swim in my pool anytime. And I was like, no, <laughs> you know, on the other, <laughs> on the other hand, the thing that makes these situations so tricky is if, you know, if the guy had been like incredibly attractive and all of that, that might've been something that I wanted to hear. So right. that's unfortunately human nature. Right. But what's interesting about, I mean, we, we don't need to totally overanalyze Arnold, poor no, guy, but, but everyone's like, we want to talk about Mr. Day. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even know who Arnold is and he probably won't even be in the TV series. <laughs> but just that, 
he expected that something would happen with sex and you and like no matter what like maybe i mean i know he picked you out of the crowd at the party and everything but that you right. maybe were more discerning well one of the things that he said was that he asked how old i was and when i told him how old i was and i think at the time i was i might have been 57 or 58 he was really shocked and he said that he had just upped his age group to maybe include 50, but he wasn't really <laughs> thinking that that would be somebody who was like 58. <laughs> and he made it very clear <laughs> that, because I think at a certain point I got so pissed off at him and I was like, why do you think women have sex with you? And he said, because I buy them handbags. Oh my God. <laughs> and this was a real thing and he really and you know i mean this is another thing that i hear a lot from men is that they they are hypersensitive a lot of them and you know maybe rightfully so or they're incredibly aware of the power that money can have over women and i do hear I hear men complaining about things like you know women just want money from them and women just want them to buy things for them and this and that. And, you know, to a certain extent that, you know, there are women like that. Could, so that was Arnold's setup. Could you imagine a future where the power dynamic is totally reversed? Um, yes, I could. <laughs> although I don't know what makes me say that um <laughs> and would that actually but, be better you know, i don't know power is it's about money really and and it's you know it's about means and it's about it's an it's about i know there's personal power which is the power to get things done and make things happen you know on your own but you know, men, they exercise a lot of its economic power over women. Yeah. You know, economic and educational and access. Yeah. Well, it was, it was really fun reading the book. And I mean, it just, it, it, I want to say it starts with a bang, but it actually starts, <laughs> it starts, it starts, it starts with a bang. I'm just going to put it there. And I, I'm not like that kind of bang. Okay. <laughs> It's an action-packed beginning. And anyway, I got about 10 pages in, and then I was like, wait a second. Is this a memoir? Is this fiction? And then I looked, and it says fiction. So right. talk about well, how it's, it's constructed. I, we're calling it autofiction because it's a lot of autobiographical elements of my life in a fictionalized setting with fictional characters. But what happens is – so it's it's my story, but then – it's also juxtaposed against all of these things that I see happening. Like, for instance, you know, the phenomenon of younger men being interested in older women. And, um, and I start to see patterns of behavior. And, and then I start to hear stories. So it's really, I had a lot of material and I was just like, how am I going to organize this? I mean, at one point... I had this idea for a TV series uh, where the women were going to run. It was a brothel, but it was for other women. 
and they were going to employ these younger guys because there were so many young guys who, uh, I don't know. And I thought the idea was really kind of interesting, but everyone's like, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had a lot of wacky ideas about what I was going to do with all these stories and this material. Yeah. And, and then it just turns in, I, you know, I really went back to the structure that I used in Sex and the City, which is, I, you know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's really fiction written as journalism. As opposed to journalism written as fiction. Yeah. It reads, I mean, it reads true. It reads true. And then, of course, you're constantly, well, did that, was, did that really happen to Candace? So, I, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. I mean, there are a lot of things that, that did happen to me in the book. Uh, and a lot of very poignant things. Because the other side of all of this is that, you know, your 50s is a very different time than your 30s. You know, in your 30s, you are not generally, I mean, one, you you can be hit with all of these life-altering events, but it's not the same as being in your 50s or 60s when you're hit with a certain amount of loss. And that's one of the things that's a big difference. You know, in your 30s, you're looking up, 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 and, you know, you're going to move forward, you're going to... You know, maybe you're already in a relationship or you're, you know, and you're raising children and you're doing that into your 40s and your career. Everything's going up. And then when you get into your 50s, things can kind of go. And, you know, a parent will probably pass away. A friend is probably, you know, will probably die, unfortunately. Um, and so while I was writing the book, my father actually did die while I was writing the book and one of my best friends took her life. So it's, you know, it was, it was an interesting experience. And I talked a lot with my editors. Like originally I had one editor and he was like, you know, it's just supposed to be funny. You know, we don't want death, but it's like, that is such a part of people's lives at this time. And it's one of the things that shapes this period. And it changes you psychically and psychologically. And because it does, it can be an opportunity for growth. Yeah. Well, what I'm, one of the things we, we had a chance to talk before we sat in this room. And one of the things that we were talking about is that, well, just like your editors were saying, we want it to be funny. We don't want any death right. in the book that there's not great role models out there for how to process the death of a parent or of yes. a friend and or even prepare for it. That is true. And, you know, at, I mean, one of the things that's really different and, you know, the last 50 years, maybe the last 30 years, 50, or 60, no, I think it was like in the mid 1960s or maybe even 1970 or 75, 76% of the population over 50 was married. So that was uh, pretty much everybody was married. Um, Unlike today where it's 50% of people are single, maybe even more people. Um, So 
when these things happen to you, they happen to you in in a sense in the comfort of your own home, and it's happening. And you tend to have like relatives and people who have dealt with this. People are there. Um, you know, you still have a partner. You've got a family. You're probably in the same house that you've lived in for a long time. Today, when these things hit you, that is not necessarily true. You may be, you know, single again. Chances are you may be living on your own. You may have moved. Um, you may be getting divorced. You know, it's there are a whole bunch of, of things that happen that don't really insulate you from these situations. And I think that's one of the things that, that makes these things a little bit tricky. Yeah. And, you know, what the process of writing while, so while you're writing the book, you lose your father, you lose your friend. How did you process those events? And then, I mean, was writing the book a way of processing them or did you have to kind of go through it and then figure out how you were going to write about it? You know, I kind of had to figure out while I, how I was going to write about it kind of while it was happening. Like I went to see my father. I knew he was going to go. And, and I was like, you know, the reality is if you're a writer, as Nora Ephron said, everything's copy. (laughs) I mean, I hate to say it, but you know, I was just very, tried to be very aware of, you know, my feelings, et cetera, and tried to process them in an adult way, which means, you know, not having a breakdown and, you know, figuring out, I mean, that's really what this time is about. You know what? At 50, you're an adult and (laughs) you have to be. You kind of do. You kind of want to have the breakdown, You kind of do. Um, And being an adult is not necessarily being busy all the time. Being an adult is being able to stand back, assess a situation, take your ego out of it, and figure out what is the best thing to do, how to move forward in a way that is the most humane and kind to everybody around and um and it's you know it's a time when you you have to kind of you know reach down and figure out how to move on and it's hard i mean there were a lot of times when i was writing this book when i was like i was depressed writing the book and but as i was writing the book i also felt something was lifting and you know when I look at that u-shaped curve the reality is for most people the bottom of that u-shaped curve it is in your 50s and then things kind of start to go up again so it was a you know this personal journey for me through my 50s And, you know, and it wasn't always easy. And I do, you know, I have friends who are, I've seen people in a lot of pain and, you know, and I've, 
this is also a time when you see, you see that some people just, they can't get it together and they just can't make it, men and women. So, you know, for me, this is something to, it's something to explore and to write about. Well, and that, and one of the things that you've written about consistently is friendship and female friendships specifically. So at what, what role do your friends play at, you know, in your fifties when the, when the really hard, I mean, it always feels like the really hard stuff is happening in your twenties and then it feels like the really hard stuff is happening in your thirties right. and the forties and then, okay. But the fifties, I mean, that's when, that's when you start actually losing people right. at a more regular basis. So what role does friendship or has friendship played for you in coming through those kinds of hard times? You know, I think it's, I, you know, it's, oh, it's what it always is. It's like people being there for you. I mean, I had like, I have one friend who she just decided, she's like, I never turned down a funeral. <laughs> she's like, I'm going to them all. I'm going to figure out, I'm figuring out how to do this. And I, it's, you, it's like, you got to show up for your friends in a different way. You know, at one time, maybe you were showing up with, you know, dating advice. Now you're showing up with soup. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, yes, it's, it's, you know, again, another time of, of, you know, finding it's for a lot of people. It's like reconnecting with people who you were friends with before you got married and had kids. Because when you have children, your friends tend to be the parents of your children's friends. Um, and if you end up getting divorced, you know, all of these things are changed. Yeah, I can, I can say that's true. Although at a certain point in my kids growing up, I decided who their friends were going to be by based on their parents. <laughs> Some people do that. The other way around. No, yes. it's all even that. We all get to hang out with whoever we want to because they're old enough. But, um, well, I'm, I'm curious around the time that you were writing this book. And this book is not, it's not political. We don't ever hear who's in the White House. We don't hear about any of the, you know, cultural movements. The Women's March doesn't show up. Me Too doesn't show up. But it was all happening. Yes. Well, that's because they the cut it all out. Okay. <laughs> Talk to us about so, that. <laughs> um, I, you know, I was writing it. I had more references to all the things that were happening, but that, I mean, editors will often cut that stuff out because they feel like it, it mark, it makes it too, you know, they want things to be a little more timeless. So they don't always want, you to have all of those kinds of references in there because, and you know, there is, there is a point to be made for that. Hopefully people will still read the book in five years and hopefully, you know, who won't be the friggin' president. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why <laughs> you heard it here. I just not going to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's a, that's a consideration, but uh, you know, it's, feels like, you know, there's a certain, maybe unease, there's a certain fear. And, um, and I think that's reflective of the times. Yeah. Well, there's, um, and there's a lot of the income disparity, but I really only sort of address that as, you know, the very, very rich who are finding themselves just not rich enough. So... Would you like to say more on that? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, 
it's pretty shocking to live on the Upper East Side. But you guys live in San Francisco, so yeah. <laughs> You know about this. Know. What are home values here versus the Upper East Side? I don't know. I don't know how it compares. I think they're probably neck and neck. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Yeah, I mean, you talk, you talk about just going shopping in your neighborhood. Yeah, and, and it was shocking. Yeah. Yes. It was really... Well, one of the things that happened was... And this was when, like, all this Facebook stuff was happening. And it was actually, a, I wrote a story. I went, I got snookered into this face cream scheme. Yeah. <laughs> I am not the only one, I promise you. And I used to walk up and down. I call it Madison World. It was, it was Madison Avenue. But there are, pla- these places are all over. And, and they... And there were youths, young people, on this soup in front of the store. And they tried to give everybody face cream, but they abused you. And they would only, like, you could see they were only trying to give it to, like, attractive people. And then, and they chased one of my friends down the street once, saying, like, you need this. You really need this. And one day, and they happened to be Russian, so one and one day I was walking by and they and they got me and I was feeling really down that day and they gave me the face cream and and I ended up going in and agreeing to go for a quote facial and when they had half of the goop on my face uh they tried to get me to buy this face cream system that was $15,000 I I mean, I made it funny because I had to make it funny, but I, you know, I was like, I was, you know, it's like the Russians aren't just on Facebook. They're also on Madison Avenue and these face cream stores. (laughs) And, you know, they were just extracting all this information from me, but mostly they were just extracting money. (laughs) And I really, I'm telling you, I could not get out of that store. I, I tried to say no every single way, and I and I was scared, and I ended up having to give them four thousand dollars. I know. And then I tried the face cream, and it worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it worked. Yes, but it was really. And so I, I just said, I've got to write a story about this and make this funny. Yeah. I mean, it's like some of the pieces to me are almost like skit pieces yeah. in the sense that, you know, I could see something on stage where you've got the woman, you know, in the chair and then you've got this woman with, you know, she's got breasts and a really good figure. And I, and, and I think, I don't know, it was... It was an interesting experience, <laughs> but she kept promising me that this face cream would change my life. And, and it's something that we've been telling women for a very long time, you know, buy this, change your hair, do this, do that, and it will change your life. Yeah. I mean, getting good, getting into your fifties can get very expensive. <laughs> yeah, All that taking it, care of oneself. <laughs> Yes, it's, it's, it's can. And, and, you know, 
Do you want to talk about the Mona Lisa? Oh, gosh, yes. (laughs) Well, first of all, this is, um, I mean, it's a laser that, and I know some of you have heard of this. And they use it to restore elasticity and et cetera in your vagina. So it's, it's a laser, but it's for inside. And it's, yes, you can, you put it in, they put it in your vagina and it works like lasers work. I mean, it's just, it's skin. Okay. So it makes sense that it might work. Um, but I want to, I want to preface it by saying that, you know, it's something that it's so easy for us to make fun of, you know, the idea of women pursuing something, you know, for, I don't even think it's sexual dysfunction, but something to enhance their sexuality or whatever. Uh, And there are basically three things for women and there are 77 products for men. So let's start with that. Uh, So it's actually, it could be a good thing, but what happens was I was thinking about doing it and it cost $3,000, but I thought if I'm going to do it, I only can do a before and after. So I have to find someone to have sex with before (laughs) and get the treatment done because how am I going to (laughs) know? I don't know. You don't think you'd be able to tell? (laughs) I don't know. I'm making that up, but I, I don't know. Probably. Yes. Because I would hope for $3,000. Well, I first heard about it. Uh, I heard about it from my gynecologist and then I brought it up at lunch with this guy. Like, have you ever heard of this? And he literally went pale and he said, my wife got it. And he said, she's divorcing me and she's gone off with a younger guy. And this, I was like, wow, I, (laughs) I heard this story. I heard this story about 20 times from other people of the same thing. Uh, So I thought that was very interesting of women, you know, actually leaving their husbands when, and, you know, really just being rejuvenated or whatever and saying, Hey, I'm going to go out there and I'm, you know, I'm don't feel like giving this up. (laughs) So (laughs) do you know why it's called the Mona Lisa? I do not. I, I Does anyone out there know? (laughs) <laughs> your inscrutable smile. <laughs> it's, I, I guess so. I guess she's like. <laughs> you, you have our Twitter handles. You can let us know if you find oh. out. But actually, um, it does. I, a couple of people wrote to me and they'd had cancer and they had to have hysterectomies and they said that it really worked for them and they were really grateful. So, you know, it's the kind of thing, again, we'd like to make fun of, but it's, it's really, you know, it's really helped. It's definitely helped some women. Yeah. And I mean, whenever you're on stage talking in front of hundreds of people about vaginas, you have to laugh like a little bit. Exactly. You know, it's awkward. (laughs) It doesn't have to be awkward. Let's make it not awkward. Okay. (laughs) Um, well, let's, while we're on the topic, uh, let's talk Tinder because you did a whole experiment with 
I did. I did a Tinder experiment. And does everyone know what Tinder is? Yes. (laughs) How many of you have gone on Tinder? Oh, show of hands. It's all the young women. And it's a guy. Um, Oh, you met on Tinder? No, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You could meet on Tinder. I mean, it's... you know, I mean, Tinder is, there's, there are no filters or anything like that. And people make their own choices. So, but it, I discovered, I mean, an app like Tinder, it really is a game. It's designed like a card game. And, you know, the app doesn't care if you meet somebody or not. It just wants you to be on it and stay on it. Um, but what I found Interestingly, with Tinder, and this is something that I feel like I'm hearing it more and more out there from guys. And I think the thing that was most interesting about Tinder was how many men, first of all, thought that the other men on it were absolutely horrible. And, you know, when men think like other men are bad, you really should pay attention (laughs) because normally they cover up each other's bad behavior. Um, and the other thing was how, uh, quite a few guys said how much they hated themselves when they were on Tinder and how it brought out like the worst sexist sides of their personality where they really just, you know, felt women were objects. And it was really interesting to talk to these guys and get their take on it. And it's, it's not heartening. Um, so I, t- and I, I ended up to also talking to a lot of 25 year old the women in their twenties who were on Tinder and they talked a lot about their frustrations and their biggest fresh frustrations seemed to be with the quality of the men that they were meeting. So hello, maybe you shouldn't go on Tinder. Um, and, I thought, I mean, I'd heard women complaining about dating before. Dating's never been easy. But it was it was really like the first piece I did for this book. And it was very eye-opening how much more negative women had become about dating and men. And I just heard like a lot more anger you know, I mean, look, there are always women out there who are, they're having a great time. It's all working out for them and they have it all together. Uh, but you know, a lot of women didn't, and they insisted that, you know, the guys that I was going to meet on Tinder were going to be like, maybe not what they said, that they would have undiagnosed mental illnesses. (laughs) Um, and that a lot of them would use drugs and that they were really unreliable and that, this sort of thing. So I went on Tinder. The first thing that happened was Tinder set my age range for who I would be attracted to based on my age. I couldn't lie about my age because I didn't know I wasn't skilled enough on (laughs) Tinder. Um, and so it hooked, it matched me up with there were like two guys over the age of 58 and they were both like smokers. 
So I set the age. I was like, what's going on? I set the age range. I was like, okay, I'm going to say 22 to 32 and see what happens. I got tons and tons of hits. So many hits. And... And, you know, I really was like, wow. And people were writing really nice things. And I was like, those girls are so wrong. And then, you know, I matched with this guy who, he was 33, I think. And, um, you know, and everyone kept saying, oh, he's a real man, man. He had a beard and a lot of hair. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sure sign. <laughs> and so we agreed to meet up and we met up and, and he told me a lot about like Tinder and how all the horrible guys were on it and this and that. And, and he was a vegetarian, which, and, but the only place we could go, I could, I could find to go was like a hamburger place. <laughs> but he was like, don't worry, I'll deal. I'll just eat French fries. So I was like, okay. Um, but it was interesting. It was fun. And we kind of, it was friendly. And he seemed like a really nice guy. So then he asked me out again. And we went to see this really cool downtown play. And I was like, hey, this is like groovy. It's great. This guy's really cool. And then he asked me out again. And I was like, I really shouldn't do this because I'm not, you know, I'm not going to date anybody for a story. Um, and I wasn't really interested, but, um, he asked me to go to the Shakespeare play in Brooklyn. So I thought, well, why not? You know, am I doing anything else? I should go. So I was crossing the Brooklyn bridge and of course I couldn't help but think about that scene in sex in the city when it's Miranda and Steve, they're going to meet on the bridge. And I was like, I'm crossing the bridge. Maybe something's going to happen. Isn't this nice? Like, I'm going to prove to everybody that you can meet a great guy on Tinder. <laughs> and so I get there, and, and everybody's pairing up and going into the theater, and then... They're ringing the bell. And I didn't have the tickets. Supposedly, this guy had the tickets. And he didn't show up. So it was an expensive taxi ride there and back. It was like $40 um, each way. And I was like, what's, you know. Um, And so I texted him and I said, maybe we got the date wrong or something like that. And... I didn't hear from him for two days. And then I got a really, really long text that said, I am so, so sorry. I lost track of time. I took MDMPD-Doo, some kind of new designer drug. And I don't know what it happened, but I tried to drive my car. I was arrested. And then I was put in a 48-hour hold. And, uh, you know, it went on and I was just like... (laughs) He turned out to be exactly what the Tinderellas had said I would find. (laughs) 
And I really thought, you know, Tinder, it's like Vegas. It's the house. It always wins. <laughs> and, and then I was going to this black tie event and, and I saw this woman outside and she was really beautiful. And she was smoking a cigarette. And I was like, oh, wow, someone's still smoking a cigarette. <laughs> I used to smoke. So I was like, I'm just going to go near the cigarette smell. <laughs> and, and I just started talking to her. And she was incredibly attractive. She was tall, blonde. She was maybe 32. She seemed like she had it all together. And so I just decided to ask her about, you know, do you go on Tinder? Now, I forgot to mention she was Russian. Uh, And she was like, yes, of course I go on Tinder. And I was like, but why? You're so beautiful. You certainly, you don't need to be on Tinder. And she was like, oh, it's when you go on Tinder, you get more Instagram followers. It's all about Instagram. And I was like, that's it. So... There you go. The real, and this is why millennials are not having as much sex, obviously. Well, you know, I don't know if anybody watched this, but a couple of nights ago, there was that Lisa Ling. It was this Lisa Ling thing about pornography and its effect on young men. And, you know, again, there were a lot of young men on there who were really very distressed about this constant use of porn and how they'd become addicted and how it affected them psychologically and how difficult it made them to find real women attractive um, and it, how it wasn't uh, and how being around real women made them very nervous, very uncomfortable. They didn't know what to do and... Um, and again, like how they really, really did not like themselves and, you know, and I, I mean, I think that, and that's something that I hear and I heard this when I was writing this Tinder piece as well, um, you know, from young, from guys about how it's impossible for them to avoid pornography and how they get so much pornography, whether they want it or not, and how it affects them in a negative way. Yeah. So, and, I, you know, that's definitely, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Porn is such a big money-making industry that we are never going to get a straight answer on it. I promise you. Um, I'm not a fan of porn. I think I know too much about it. Yeah. (laughs) So, well, are we, are we going to ask people to, um, if they have questions to go, I'm I'm looking at Nicole. Yeah. Okay. So if you have questions, you can start, there's a mic in the back. You can start taking a spot up there. Um, while, and while that's happening, um, just thinking, I'm just thinking about how, how women in their 50s and up are depicted in the media and, you know, in movies and in, in our culture in general and how, right. how we can start to see a shift toward that being, you know, we're not just irrelevant, you know, it's, 
Yes, well, I think that is... New world. It's really... I mean, it's changing so much because because I feel like, you know, the the sex in the city woman who to me, I mean, to me, the sex in the city woman is a woman who's my age. I'm 60. Um, uh, But it's about the uh, really a it was a change that happened in the late 70s and the early 80s. And it really happened because of feminism, the pill. Um, also, women's magazines at that time were really very important, and they were disseminating information to regular women out there about things that you could have that you could never have before. And one of them was an orgasm, and the other was a career. <laughs> and, you know... And that, ladies and gentlemen, is having it all. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, Forget everything know, else. And in the, in the late 70s and 80s, there was a huge influx of women into the workforce. Um, you know, this has happened a couple of times in the 1920s, for instance, but then it always, women end up going back to the home. Um, and it happened at that time. And, and that really made a lot of, you know, for a lot of changes. And, you know, the, it was a group of women who they were going to go out there and do something that their mothers hadn't done. They were going to try to have it all. Um, it was really like the first generation of women that were encouraged, told that you could have it all, that you could have a family, you could have a career. Uh, so it, this is not a group of women who are shy violets, you know, this is uh, tends to be a group of women who they're used to challenging the status quo and they're used to going out there and changing things and changing perspectives. And this is really the same group of women, but they're older. So um, and they're and they're, you know, they're not going to go away. Yeah. So, so now, now's the time think, to show up. They're showing up. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I, I do think it is. I, I do. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's a different time. Yeah. Do we have some questions? Candace, every story, everyone loves a happy ending, especially with Carrie and Big. <laughs> so my question is, have you found your happy ending? I see a, a beautiful sparkler on your left hand. Oh, I was just <laughs> wondering if you found your no, happy ending. I, um, you know, I mean, for me, a happy ending would be a f- somebody who feels self-actualized, who feels like they have been able to have an impact in some way on the world and their environment and what's around them. Um, I mean, I have to tell you, to me, a happy ending is not a guy. And it never has been. <laughs> um it's to me a happy ending is it is self actualization and it is living up to your potential and um i mean to me i think to me the scariest thing about being a woman and it still is annoying to me and scary to me is because of the way society is structured is that i can't live up to my potential that i am denied living up to my potential. And that's the worst thing to me 
for women is that you can't live up to your potential. Um, so, you know, again, that's, that's, that to me is the happy ending. Um, and then in terms of, I did actually meet somebody while I was writing, is there still sex in the city? Um, and I did meet my Mr. Big when I was writing sex in the city. So it might be that writing about relationships is a it works for me. <laughs> uh, but then in terms of this ring, I live on the Upper East Side and everywhere I go, I see women with sparklers this big and they're real. Maybe they're not. Um, and I was walking up Madison Avenue and I was feeling really good that day. I think my book was going to come out in a couple of days. And... I guess I just wanted to get myself a little something. (laughs) So I was walking by the store. I saw all these rings and I also saw costume jewelry. I was like, really? So I went in and I tried on this ring and it was $300. And I was like, it looks real. And the guy's like, I know. It looks real. (laughs) He's like, it's the latest Tiffany design. So I was like, I am going to get this engagement ring to myself. And I'm going to look at it and just remember, like, go girl. (laughs) And and then, on the other hand, I also, I do have a boyfriend. I call him my new boyfriend. He's never been married, and he's 58, and he probably never is going to get married. (laughs) So I just thought, I'm going to play a trick on him. (laughs) I'm going to put this on, and I'm going to go around to all of our friends, and I'm going to see if anybody notices, and if they say anything. (laughs) And they didn't. Seriously? <laughs> yes. And then, and then he was like, wait, what? And then he said, oh, that's a really nice ring. And I was like, yes, it is. Um, but I don't know. I was just really playing games. And then I got kind of attached to it. And I do like the fact that it's fake. Um, because I just think it's fun. And, and so I wear it. And I do kind of, yeah. And it's, it's kind of like a little worry bead. Um, but I do feel like, I mean, I feel like in the last, I mean, I do, I feel like, I do feel like the happy ending. It's, it's, you know, it's finding yourself. So. Hi, Candice. Um, you were talking about a sex recession earlier among millennials. This is a two part question. First, um, is that real? Do you believe in it? And secondly, what can we do about it? Well, um, you know, I think porn is Mother Nature's way of of birth control. Um, you know, everybody says that there's a sex recession. And I don't, you know, these kinds of things, it's impossible to judge. How do we know? Because how do we know how much sex people really used to have? The one thing that's pretty constant is that when it comes to sex, 90% of people lie. 
Um, so they, you know, when they try to do studies and this and that, they they really have no way of of knowing. So it's it's just from really just from surveys. Um, so yeah, that's what people say. There, you know, people say there is this sex recession. I don't know why everybody worries about it so much because the fact of the matter is, you know, I got to tell you guys, you spend too much time thinking about sex, okay? And you need to, men need to spend more, less time thinking about sex and more time thinking about the environment, honestly. (laughs) So I'm not really worried about it. Um, And, you know, I don't know. There are... There are more people on the, I mean, everybody despairs about humanity, but the reality is that people are doing better than they ever, human beings are doing better than they ever have in the history of the world, which is why there are so very, very, very many of us. And I don't know, but I'm not really worried about it. (laughs) But are you worried? You're a millennial. I mean, all, you know what? The other thing is, at one time, there weren't that many things to do, okay? I mean, there was drinking and there was sex. But, and, but you know, there was, and there was TV, but there wasn't Netflix and there weren't all these video games and there wasn't porn on demand. Like if you wanted to get porn, I mean, uh, you know, it was not easy. Exactly. But, um, I, you know, so it's hard to say people, there are, you know, there are other things that take up people's time, but I am going to say this, like one of the things with middle-aged people is I have this friend and she's my age and I went, to, I went to Atlanta and I saw her and she was like, I met this. She's been with this guy for a couple of years. She got divorced. She met him online. She went through a hundred guys. She met a hundred guys. And then she found this guy. And she was like, we had sex yesterday for an hour and a half. And it's really great. She was like, Candy, it's so much better. And it's so good. And it can be that way. So it's, you know, it's something that some people really want to make it a priority. (laughs) Quality (laughs) over quantity. I don't know. Other people are like, I got 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) One more question. Okay. Two. 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 I'll make it super fast. Um, Candice, you've had a huge impact on my life. I was an editor at Condé Nast in the 90s. So, you know, thank you. Um, my question is, what did you take out of the book? I want to hear one of the stories that they made you take out about politics or just, just one, oh, one snapshot. There's an editor's question. Yes. <laughs> she knows. You know, I don't know. I, I, I'd have to like go back and think about it, but they always make you take stuff out that, you know, it seems like it, maybe it's good stuff, but you know, I mean, one of the things that kind of have to do like trust the editors a little bit. So I don't know. You know what? I mean, I've had so I, you know, I wrote a book and in it there were, uh, 
It was a kind of the, a bit of a fantasy book. It was very surreal. And I was in Connecticut at the time. And so I was writing about, I, I was writing about how like, you know, your sort of average person like out there in the suburbs, how their life really could be going down. Like people who were once middle-class were going down and you know, I had these characters and I, I would get notes from editors like, get rid of those disgusting poor people from the suburbs. <laughs> so, you know, there's a sensibility <laughs> that editors can have and Some judgment. That's it. You know, <laughs> next question. <laughs> Welcome to San Francisco. Um, I was just hoping that you could give a shout out to all of your fans who are gay men by answering (laughs) what are the most meaningful and impactful way that uh, gay men in your life have influenced your writing and what's the best dating advice you've ever gotten from a gay man? Well, I didn't get some dating advice, but I got some sex tips. (laughs) Um, yes, I, you know, I, at the beginning when I was very young in, yes, I had, you know, my gay friends were telling me what to do to please guy and it worked. Um, you know, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, I, I have to sort of substitute how has anybody in my life influenced my writing and I mean, you know, just in the sense of writing about life, really. Uh, the, I mean, the one thing I will say is, you know, I had my Stanford and he was very pissed off when he saw Darren Starr's casting of Stanford. <laughs> because my Stanford was tall and he had all his hair. <laughs> but no, I mean, I think, you know, they, it's wonderfully influential, but, you know, I think it's just writing a you know part of life thank you all right (laughs) okay so we wrap up every informed conversation with this kicker of a question which is what is your 60 second idea to change the world okay well it's not 60 seconds it's like five seconds and this is when i just say Women, take over. (laughs) Grab the money. Grab the education and grab the power and, you know, and make an impact. And, you know, I also would say the other thing that's very interesting to me is kind of given the choice how many women don't necessarily want to get married and don't necessarily want to have children. And... You know, I think that we as women, you know, we have to be very open minded that there is no right one way to be a woman and, you know, have an impact on our culture. So, I mean, I think we need to we celebrate mothers, but we also need to celebrate, you know, childless women who are making, you know, different decisions that may allow them to go, you know, deeper into politics and, you know, deeper 
and, you know, and be CEOs and all of that. I just, I don't have a problem with it. I don't think that every woman has to live the same life and that their life has to follow the same pattern. So that's, that's my answer. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you, Candace, for sitting and speaking with me. Thank you. And let's give Candace a round of applause. All right. She will be, she will be uh, out there in the lobby signing books. So you can head out that way and she'll meet you out there. Great. Thank you. Thank you.